Thank you for listening to the Stonehouse Sermon Series, A Disciple's Songbook. This series focuses on the Psalms of Ascent, songs that God's people would sing on their journey up to Jerusalem. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church, and uh, we love Jesus and his word here uh, in this church, and we desire to uh, really seek after what it is that he has to say to us through his word. Um, We're spending time in the book of Psalms right now. Uh, which is a, a fabulous book of expression, right? We've already found this. We're, we're eight weeks into this series, so we're about halfway through. We're just doing 15 weeks uh, walking through the Psalms of Ascent. Um, and, and what we've seen already in this series is a lot of uh, crying out to God, right? We've, we've seen some desperate plea uh, coming from these psalmists. Uh, we've seen them say things like, Life's not fair, God. I'm sinking, I'm drowning, the world's crashing around me, where are you, God? Uh, We see them saying things like, help, Uh, if I don't have you, I have nothing. Um, All sorts of declarations about the goodness of God and how that goodness is absolutely essential to the life of a follower of God and for us to a follower of Jesus and um, so every week we, we've been walking through this. We've been trying to help kind of uh, process these psalms. Um, you know, when you first listen to a song, it can be hard to kind of pick up the aim of the song because, you know, poetic and lyrics are sometimes missed in their first run through. And so we've been trying to give you questions to help you process through these psalms. They're, they may be helpful for you throughout the week to kind of listen through these psalms in light of those questions and kind of try to hear them. They also might be helpful for you in a, a city group gathering where we discuss these psalms. So those questions are at the, I think they're on page two or whatever of your program. So uh, if note-taking is your thing, that might kind of help you take notes today or if just processing stuff through your own reading of the word, um, that's good. If, if you're a Bible reader, um, that's absolutely encouraged. We really love God's Word and love to read through God's Word. I hope that you do that in, in some manner. Um, but what we really want to kind of avoid is like just kind of the religious pressure to just like quantitatively do that, right? Like sometimes you can fall into that trap where you're just like, I've got to get through blank this year or this month or whatever. And so questions like are in your um, in your bulletin and, and just kind of slowly walking through things really, we believe, brings, uh, man, just a tremendous amount of light to Scripture and understanding. And that's why we commit to walking through basically here, commit to walking through books of the Bible um, and letting God's voice speak to us through His Word. Um, so we're going to continuously and repeatedly read these Psalms. So I'm going to read Psalm 127 again. I'll read it again at the end. And as well, we're going to just track through it. So I don't read this because Nate did a bad job. Um, 
Uh, we read this because we just want it to continually wash over us, and hopefully as these words get more and more familiar to us, uh, we'll, we'll kind of understand them and, and see them sink into uh, our hearts. So here we go again with Psalm 127. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman, uh, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll dig into these things. Lord, thanks for your grace to us. Um, Father, we are humbled to uh, even be able to call on you, to be able to look in your word and, and uh, to see you there and to, to hear you speaking to us through uh, your word. Um, God, we recognize that this is a supernatural engagement um, that we, by our own selves, do not have uh, the wisdom and understanding to take your word and apply it to our lives. But because of your Holy Spirit living inside of us, our hearts and minds are opened to the truth of Scripture. And so we pray, uh, like Jesus said repeatedly, those who have ears to hear, Lord, would you give us ears to hear? And Lord, if any of us sit here without ears to hear, God, if we are deaf to uh, the words of Scripture which point to Jesus as God and Savior, uh, would you please, uh, by a divine act of mercy, give ears so that we might hear, so that we might respond, uh, so that we might be saved by you. Um, God, this psalm today is quite different than what we've walked through so far, so I pray that you would just kind of uh, tune ourselves to that difference and help us uh, really to glean wisdom uh, from Psalm 127. We thank you for it. It is, it is a very important psalm, uh, and we pray that the truths of it would not uh, escape us this morning. We know that we are dependent on you for that, so again, Lord, send your spirit. Please help us to see uh, your truth, to see Jesus, and to be able to worship you um, through the wisdom of the psalm. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take a look at three things uh, through this psalm today. Number one, we're just going to kind of ponder on the, 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 the concept of a song of wisdom. Uh, what exactly is a song of wisdom? Uh, secondly, we're going to look at a warning about work that we find here in, in Psalm 127. And then thirdly, we will look at the example of children as the work of God, uh, as kind of uh, unveiled here in Psalm 127 as well. So first off, we're just going to look at this uh, song of wisdom. Um, this is for us in this series, anyway, the first psalm of wisdom uh, that we've come to. So far, we've had uh, psalms of lament and celebration, both individual and community lament. Um, we've had uh, what, what's called kind of a, a Zionist psalm uh, as well, but this is our first psalm of wisdom. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of psalms uh, that are called wisdom psalms in the scriptures. This is one of them. And our next one, next week, is also all... Uh, uh, going to be a wisdom psalm. Psalm 128 uh, is also a wisdom psalm. If you're interested in the others, Psalm 1, Psalm 36 and 37, Psalm 49, Psalm 73, Psalm 112, 
And then also Psalm 133. Those are all wisdom psalms. So there's a handful of them. And wisdom psalms uh, basically take the themes of the wisdom literature and express them in poetic or song-like form. Okay, Just like we've seen a lot of the other psalms, they take Old Testament truths and declare them through poetic terms or through songs, right? And so these wisdom psalms take the themes of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. That's the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It takes the themes from those books and expresses those themes in a poetic form. So if you've read any of those four books that I just mentioned, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, show of hands. Anybody read one of them or maybe several of them or all of them? Okay, so we've got a good sampling here. Most of us have read some of those wisdom literatures. Really straightforward, super easy to understand, not confusing stuff at all, right? No, man, the wisdom literature is bonkers. Like it is all over the place. Uh, Proverbs seems very straightforward right? You're like, this is what you do, and this is what happens. This is what good people do, and this is what happens. This is what bad people do, and this is what happens. This is what wise people do. This is what happens. This is what fools do, and this is what happens, right? It seems very straightforward to the point, right? It seems cut and dry, and like, if you just read Psalms in the Bible, you'd think, man, the world is awesome. It works perfectly. All the good stuff happens to the good people. All the bad stuff happens to the bad people. In the end, everything that God says ends up perfect. And then you get to something like Ecclesiastes, where you just go, what is this depressed (laughs) lunatic talking about, right? He's like, man, nothing works. In fact, the whole world is meaningless. Meaningless, right? Like this this just sad, kind of depressed, confusing, very complex adult thinking author brings us to the, the, the confusion of, wait a minute, I read in Proverbs the world works in these perfect ways, but it's not working in those perfect ways. Why? Right? And Ecclesiastes kind of helps frame that complexity of wisdom. That wisdom knows there is a system, but wisdom knows that deep within us is a brokenness, and as a result of that brokenness, all of the systems, too, are broken. That sin has infected this world in such a way that all of the set-forth principles of God in creation are having dysfunction. Why? Because I'm having dysfunction, because we're having dysfunction, and therefore things don't work as they always ought to. And not just us, but also creation, right? The whole world is working in dysfunctional ways. There are broken things happening. And so the wisdom literature helps us to see there is a way that God has designed the world to work, but also there are confusing aspects of how the world actually does work because of the brokenness of sin. And ultimately, a life that is wise is a life that is lived under the operating principles of God with the added wisdom of knowing that even when things go awry, God is big enough, loving enough, good enough, powerful enough to even be in control in those things, right? And that's what Job says, (laughs) right? That book, Job proclaims this 
beautiful reality where God never answers the question that Job asks, why am I suffering? But he says, I'm big. I'm glorious. I'm powerful. I know all things. I built this place. I rule over every creature in the deep and on high. And my plans and purposes will prevail. And so to be wise then is to live within these truths and see them bring to us an understanding so that we might appropriately tackle the complex life that we're given to, to, to live, right? David Reimer says this, that biblical wisdom then might be defined as skill in the art of godly living and in that an orientation which allows us to live within God's ordering of the world. And so we seek after wisdom, and as we seek after wisdom, we have this kind of uh, benchmark phrase that is spoken in uh, both the wisdom psalms, or the wisdom literature, and in the wisdom psalms, and also even the prophets, and that's this phrase, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have you heard this phrase before? So it's in Psalm 111, verse 10. It's also in Proverbs 1, 7. Uh, it's this, this concept is first introduced by Job in his dialect uh, or in his uh, um, discussion with his wonderful friends. Uh, and it's also repeated by the prophets Isaiah and Micah. And that is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean for us? That means that when we look at God's ordering of the world and we submit to his godness over it, we start to be wise. Right? We start there. When we're in awe of the supreme power of God and that even this at sometimes confusing world, that all of that is working within God's sovereign structuring of things, that that's where wisdom starts. And so that gives us benefit in ways like when we look at things that work as though they should work, we go, man, glory to God. Right? And I see in that in the way that things are working, I see wisdom and I'm like, oh man, and I add that wisdom to my life. And I'm like, okay, I see that there is, uh, that there is uh, fruit to, or consequences to actions. And we gain wisdom when we see that repeatedly. We go, okay, I see some of the way the world is to work. And then when things don't work the way they're supposed to work and they get all murky and twisted and confusing, we go, okay, it makes sense to me now that the scriptures say things are broken and stuff has been turned on its head, but still God is more uh, powerful than the brokenness of mankind in such a way that he can take broken things and work them through wisdom for his glory. And so what ends up being produced when we seek wisdom uh, in the lives of those who fear the Lord is that we start to reflect God's character. When we walk in wisdom, we start to reflect the character of God because God is wise. And so this really is kind of the point of the redemption work in our lives is for God to lead us into looking like Jesus to develop character in us that reflects the glory in the image of God. Are we God and are we Jesus? No. But when we function in wisdom, we reflect God in his wisdom. And we therefore bring glory and honor to Jesus by doing that. Right? And that's, I mean, this, this is why it's so important to kind of try to glean wisdom from these texts in Scripture and from looking at life uh, as God would give us wisdom. And even a scriptural command, pray for wisdom right? 
to, to actually ask God, please God, give me wisdom. Right? Recognizing that wisdom comes divinely from his hand. And the reason we would look at this is because it helps us to see that there's an aim for our life. Wisdom shows us what we should be pointing toward. We should be pointing toward the glory of God, and we should be pointing towards uh, showing his character through our lives. Right? There's a goal to this discipleship journey. Right? And it's to proclaim to people, this is what it looks like to walk in wisdom or to walk in the fear of the Lord. Right? Have you, I mean, you, know, you start a journey without any place, without an aim, you're just wandering aimlessly. Um, and so wisdom kind of gives us that aim to say we're pursuing the character of God as we want to reflect his nature through our lives. So that's kind of a, just a broad idea of wisdom and, and, and the wisdom literature. And then reflected through song uh, or psalm, psalm or poetry or whatever here in, in Psalm 127, the uh, example or the per- particular theme that this psalm is looking at is work. And so we have in the wisdom literature and here in Psalm 127, we have some declared truths about work that when we glean these truths and see them operating in our lives, they lead us towards wisdom. They lead us towards working wisely. And in working wisely, we reflect the glory of God. We display the image of God. Why? Because God worked. And because God is working and because God will always be working. This is a profound truth that's in Scripture that if we miss, like, man, what percentage of your life is just tossed how much time do you spend at work if you don't, you know, unredemptively, if you don't understand that work is good and that God even works? And so let's look at the first two verses. They give us a warning about work. Again, Psalm 127, 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So right off the bat, if you kind of dwell on these verses, you see that what is not being said here is you don't have to work. God does everything, just go fishing. (laughs) Right? That's that's not Psalm 127. Some of us really wish it was. Okay, so this is not saying don't work. Just sit back and watch God work. Right? Some people, some Christians do this with the Bible as kind of their backdrop. They're like, well, God's going to do everything. Okay? That's false. It's not wise to say, well, I don't have to do anything. God's going to do everything. Right? That's not what this psalm is saying. It's also not saying. God has something he needs you to do. You better get up and get to it, right? Just buck up, be strong, and make it happen, okay? That's also not what this psalm is saying. What it is saying is that God works through our work, okay? God works through our work, which he empowers, he dignifies, and he blesses Because in our work, we reflect the image of our creator, God. Okay? God works through our work, right? Which he empowers, he dignifies, and he blesses because in our work, we reflect the image of God. Okay? 
the, the why do we reflect the image of God is because God has worked and because God is working, right? And because God is going to bring about his glorious purposes in the world through our work. And so in this, we find that work is good, right? Unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord watches. There's an implicitness to God being involved. There's work here. And if God is involved in work, then work itself is good, right? There's an improper understanding of the creation and fall that says God created the world. It was good and right and perfect. Then we sinned and then we started working. That's wrong. That's an improper view of Genesis 1 and 2. The proper view of Genesis 1 and 2 is God worked. In the beginning, God worked. He created. He made the world. Then he made mankind. And then he said to mankind, work. He said, create. He said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, make culture, build something. And then we sinned. Okay, so work wasn't post-fall, work was pre-fall, because work is good, because God works. Okay, we've got to get that into our heads and into our hearts. God himself worked. Another thing that we see about how work is good is what did Jesus do? What was Jesus' vocation? He was like my dad. He was a carpenter. Have you ever shaken my dad's hands? Anybody? Few people in here have. They're really strong, and they're full of calluses, and they've got scars everywhere, right? Like, my dad in a Band-Aid was just common life. Like, that was what happened. Because he worked, and Jesus was a carpenter, and being a carpenter in Jesus' day was, I mean, no saws, no electricity, right? He didn't have laser sights figuring everything out. He didn't have hired, I mean, he worked. And so we see in the fact that God sent his own son into the world and his son worked. And it wasn't, it wasn't a, a detour on what his life was really supposed to be. It was divinely orchestrated. It was exactly according to God's plan. And then not only did he bleed with his hands, but he bled from his brow and his hands and his feet. He worked for our redemption. The cross was not easy. Calling the disciples to himself and training them was not easy. Waking up early in the morning to find the town at the door, knocking to say, come heal our sick, and then to heal the sick, and then try to get in a boat to escape, only to find the crowd has followed him across the lake, and to feed 5,000 people, and then to try to get away after that, and to find more people. It was work for Jesus to minister. It was work for Jesus to bring redemption. And then one of the beautiful things, I'm already getting ahead of myself, one of the beautiful things we see in that is that you and I benefit from God's work. Jesus in his ministry, Jesus on the cross, God raising Jesus from the dead. The work of God is enjoyed by you and me. What do we do to enjoy it? Nothing. We just have faith. We just have faith. We trust wholeheartedly that the work of Jesus is enough for us. That now, religiously, I don't have to work. This, 
if we really got this, if we really understood this and truly believed it every single day of our lives, I struggle to believe it all the time, guys. If we believed I have everything that Jesus worked for by just believing in him, that changes everything. The pressure is gone, right? One of the most arduous parts of doing this work, you know it if you've been a minister, one of the hardest parts of doing the work is getting over the thought that it's up to me. That is painful and unending. And man, I smack into brick walls all the time. You know this, right? Like, holy moly. I don't believe that Jesus' work is enough. I think I have to do some work so that I'm good enough so that I can earn the approval of God. That's what religion says. And so we see even in this reality of work, the gospel proclaimed to us because God worked for us. That's amazing. That's amazing. And we can enjoy the fruit of God's work. So we actually did a series uh, last year on work. Um, it was a part of our larger series called Live, Work, Play, Wisdom, which just kind of looks at everyday stuff of life through the lens of the book of Proverbs and tries to glean wisdom and learn. So we did three weeks on work. Uh, if you didn't hear that, it's all online. Uh, I would highly encourage you to check it out because we talk about how work is good. We talk about how work is broken. And we talk about how Jesus can redeem work. It's essential as workers for us to understand these truths about God and about work, right? So take a look at verse 1 again here. The builder is not told to not build, right? The watchman is not told to just nap, right? No. They are both warned that work that they should do without the partnership of the Lord in that work is work done in vain, okay? And so what this means is that we exercise our human responsibility to do our work well along with dependence on God, okay? Because our hands cannot completely produce. God must partner with our hands in order to produce the fruit of our work, okay? He's saying if the builders don't build what God would build, basically, then they're building in vain. If the watchman is watching over a city that God is not watching over, then they might as well be sleeping, there is an aspect to our work that requires our responsibility and an aspect to our work that requires trusting in God's complete sovereignty. And they don't cancel each other out. And this is often one of the complexing things about the wisdom of God presented in Scripture is it isn't necessarily do this and don't do that. It's that there are these, these two realities functioning at the same time that we have to understand God is here and I have to work. Right? And they don't cancel one another out. So our labor does not remove the need for God's sovereignty, nor does God's sovereignty remove the need for my labor. Get that? We've got to do them both. We both work and trust in God's sovereignty. Right? So if you just say, I'm a deep truster in God's sovereignty, therefore I don't work, you're wrong. The Bible disagrees with you. Right? Or if you say, I just got to keep on working and do it my way, then you're also wrong. The Bible disagrees with you. 
there is a submission to God in that reality. To say it another way, you could work all your life long to try to produce a fruit tree that can grow without water. Like you could spend your whole life trying to figure that out. I'm going to make a tree with fruit that doesn't need water. Dang it. We're going to figure this out. We've got scientific advancements. We can make this happen. Fruit can grow without water. I know that I can do this, right? That would be work in vain. Why? Because in God's creative sovereignty, he made fruit to need water, right? So a better application of wisdom then would be to work at irrigation, right? To work at streamlining and and creating better usefulness of water resources so that we can avoid droughts. So that in a time where there's little rain, our crops might still prevail, right? That would be a more appropriate way to work rather than try to create something that's against nature, We should work within the confines of nature and work very hard to be faithful and to be fruitful. And so we work in the Lord, and to work with the Lord means to work according to God's created order. So this means that if a job is uh, unethical, illegal, you know, uh, then that's not good work, right? So we would say that all work has meaning, (sighs) yes, but... I mean, you could deal drugs and make plenty of living, right? So that's not according to God's good design for the world. To break laws in order to make money would be to be working in vain, right? To work unethically, even in legitimate businesses, would also be unfruitful labor, right? And so we also uh, work according, or so we work according to God's created order, but we also work with the Lord by trusting Him to produce an impact through our work, okay? We trust that what we do is not in vain and we place it into the hands of the Lord and believe that he will bring about whatever fruit he has determined will come about through that work, right? And we know that God's work ultimately uh, produces uh, eternal fruit, uh, but our work produces generational fruit. Our work actually benefits this world and it's God's way of working in this world. And so we see God partnering in the work that we do to bring about provision, to bring about stewardship, to produce uh, resources so that there can be generosity, right? God works through these things, and through this work, he brings about generational implications. And so we work, and God enables our work in order to produce the collective thriving of human society. Now, verse 2 in here gives us a name for kind of the framework of working without God. And that name is anxious toil. It's in the second half of verse 2. It says, eating the bread of anxious toil. Anxious toil is what work produces when we do not have trust in the Lord involved. And at at the deep core of anxious toil is an effort of self to prove oneself. Okay. And here's, here's how the, the brokenness of sin invades work. We look at our work, right? And we're smack dab in a middle of society that, that, that struggles with this. We look at our work as the thing that will define us. We look at our work as the thing that will make us reasonable and justifiable human beings. We treat our work as though it is us. It's our identity. And when we look at work that way, we engage in anxious toil because we think it's up to me to make a name for myself 
We think it's up to me to justify myself through my work, right? We think it's up to me to prove them wrong or to prove them right or whatever. It's all about the viewpoint of others. The, the, the anxious toil of work is work at justifying self. And we get worked all out of whack when we engage in work like this. We see that work in anxious toil produces stress-filled laboring in order to justify ourselves, right? Someone who works like that, someone who works with anxious toil says uh, that I've got to get this right. I have to produce something so that I can stamp my name on it and I can be somebody, right? That mindset produces anxious toil. You can't sleep at night, according to verse 2, when you labor like that, when you think it's all up to me to make a name for myself. I've got to prove my worth through this work. We bury ourselves into the ground when we think like that. So the relief from anxious toil ultimately is looking at what proves that I am valuable. What gives me worth? What gives me dignity? What gives me a name? And the answer to that is that God does. Because God has said, you're my creation, you bear my image, and so therefore you are of utmost value. And in addition to this, I've sent my only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might be saved, that the, the value of your soul was worth the cost of the son of God. To be heightened through that declaration of value alleviates the pressure to say, I've got to prove myself through my work, right? Right? No longer do I have to make a name for myself because my name is in a book (laughs) that stands over all of history. It's been put in that book through the work of another, so therefore I have no proving to do whatsoever, right? But let's be honest, this is a daily grind, honestly. Like I've got a picture, I think I've shown you before, of a whiteboard on where my wife wrote a phrase that said, Derek, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. I was in the midst of a, a ministry training school when a pastor told me, you don't believe that. And I was like, say that again to my face. No. You know, like, <laughs> he said, Derek, you don't trust in the finished work of Jesus. I'm like, baloney, I've been preaching it for years. He's like, your life doesn't reflect it. You don't genuinely believe this. This is a place where you need to repent and you need to fall under this truth day in and day out and let your soul be washed by the gospel. That Jesus has done the work. That in Jesus' work, I am proved. By what? By faith. And now I'm a son. I'm adopted into his family. I am called righteous. Listen, you, if you trust in Jesus, if you believe in him, You're righteous. Talk about erasing work, right? Like we're after righteousness in so many different aspects. And so scripture releases us from this anxious toil that says I've got to prove myself. I've got to get my name in some kind of record that shows I'm worth something. No, you're not. No, you don't. You could disappear tomorrow and you would be approved through the work of Jesus. And so the rest at the end of verse 2 that he's talking about comes through knowing this truth. And Tim Keller says it 
beautifully like this. The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work. For we are already proven and we are already secure. Belief in the gospel liberates us from this pressure to prove ourselves. Now, does that mean we don't work hard? No. Does that mean we do not pursue faithfulness to God's commands? No. But it means that our empowerment is utterly different, and it is untappable. It will not run out. The power for doing the work that God has called us to do will be provided by God himself. Okay? The power to do the work that God has called us to do will be provided by God himself. And that's what verses 3 through 5 help us to see. These verses are an example of what's already been declared in verses 1 and 2. Okay? It seems a little confusing. You're like, you're talking about work and all of a sudden babies. What's going on here? Right? <laughs> like these verses, 3 through 5, are an example of the principle that's been established in verses 1 and 2, which can be gleaned from the wisdom literature. Okay? And the example is this. Let's read it. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Eugene Peterson just sets this up beautifully. He says, opposed to the strenuous efforts of persons who doubt God's providence and mistrust human love, the, those who would seek their own gain by godless struggle is the gift of children, born not through human effort, but through the miraculous process of reproduction which God has created among us. So he's saying, listen, verses 1 and 2 warn us against this striving on our own without God, and the, the direct opposite of that striving on our own without God is the making of human beings, right? The producing of children. How is that directly opposite? Okay, well, we ask this question. How does God make babies? How does God at this point in life, okay, so he made Adam from the dust, made Eve from Adam, miraculous creation that was all God, no man at all, and from that point moving forward through history, how has God continued to create human beings? Through us. We make babies. Like God does the work of producing the greatest product that the planet has ever seen, and he does this through us. And not just through us, but through something really awesome and enjoyable. Like, are you kidding me? That's what work looks like to produce children? Right? Like, this is a glorious truth. And, and it, it lines right up with how I just summarized that last section, that God gives the command and then gives the power. Right? Because in Genesis 1 and all throughout Genesis, God repeats this command to every new couple in the Bible. He says, be fruitful, multiply. Be fruitful, multiply. Be fruitful, multiply. Right? How? By trusting God's miraculous intervention in a really beautiful situation that makes this possible. God says, go produce fruit, and then God produces fruit. While we just basically have the time of our life. I mean, it's like, this is how God fulfills the mandate of human creation. He actually works through our enjoyment to fulfill his own command, 
right? This is the example of what it's like to work with the understanding that God is the one who works, okay? So it's kind of strange, but go to work this week thinking you're making love. Like, it's just super enjoyable. This is God's way of producing in the world is through your work, through just the enjoyable interaction of work. Now, of course, we know it's broken, it's messed up, and often we get thorns instead of fruit and so on and so forth. But God produces. It's God who does it, right? If we look at our work the way we looked at lovemaking, it would change everything about our work, right? I mean, obviously. So, but just the, the, the reality that's communicated through that is profound. That I by myself cannot produce anything, but when God decides for something to be produced, right? Psalm 139, that every day of my life was written before a single one of them came to pass, right? So the whole before a glimmer in my dad's eye thing, right? Like God decided I would exist. Like I text my mom yesterday, hey, thanks for making me and raising me. You know, it was like, yay. Um, it's just like, that's a strange thing to say, but that's how God decided to bring my life about. It's through my parents, so God's work is profound in that it involves us, but look at how it involves us. Look at how it involves us. When we trust that God is at work through us, man, it, it, it's just, it changes dramatically what we think about how we produce in this world. Both children and things, work, commerce, the world, culture, whatever, right? It changes. We go, man, if God's not in this, I can't just work it up. God has to do something here. God has to do something profound and unseen and something that he's planned for ages in advance. God has to be at work in my work in order for my work to produce anything. That's a profound truth, right? And the gift of children shows us that reality. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. If God doesn't give that, there's nothing you can do. God has to give it. Amen? Amen? This is absolutely amazing that God gives the command and then the power to fulfill his own command. <laughs> That's awesome. We talked about joy last week and it was the second of the fruit of the Spirit. We see that in Galatians 5, that fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, Self-control, these things are produced how? By God working in us. And so the, the conclusion last week was not go get joy, go figure it out and make it happen. The conclusion last week was go see the Lord build joy. Look back on how the Lord has given you joy and ask the Lord again to give you joy. Same thing in the production of fruit in our work Look back and see how God has produced through your hands. Ask God today to continue to produce through your hands. And what's glorious is that God even brings redemption through our hands. How beautiful are the feet of those who tell the good news, Isaiah says. Paul repeats it, right? God brings about salvation in people's lives here and now through our hands, through our feet, through our words. Mind-blowing. He's done all the work, yet the work would get nowhere if we didn't open our mouths. We have responsibility in that. It's really cool. 
right? We get to take part in God's work in St. Pete to establish his church so that people might be saved and see the glory of Jesus. How is that going to happen? By us twiddling our thumbs and saying, okay, God's going to do everything. Let's go fishing. No, he says, get to work, right? Labor to see this happen and trust that labor to produce according to God's design. Because only God can produce spiritual children. (laughs) Only God can make someone have faith. I cannot do that. God alone will do that. And so we see that God works through us, right? He does incredible works. God does incredible works, and he does incredible works through us. And these incredible works that that God does through us bring him glory. This is Psalm 127. Let's read it again before we close. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are in awe of how it is that you have decided to work. And God, to look back at creation and to look back at how your purposes in history have been accomplished to work, to look at the work that Jesus did and ultimately the painful toil of redemption that was wrought at Calvary through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. These things are just glorious to behold. To think, God, that you are producing through feeble, sinful, limited hands is just awe-inspiring. So God, would you lead us to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom here, that we might be people who work diligently but trust you in our work and know that only you can ultimately produce through our work and that we don't have to prove anything because we've already been called sons and daughters of the Most High God. So, Lord, help us to work and, appropriately, to rest. And, God, help us when it comes to religion and thinking about obedience and faithfulness. Help us, God, to have the right mind about how you give us power to obey your own commandments so that we might be faithful and give glory to God and rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Yeah, we thank you for these psalms. And Lord, we worship you in view of your holiness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to sing three songs. Hopefully you've got them on your phone. Um, Again, they are I Surrender All, Take My Life, and Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Uh, As we sing together, we'll uh, take communion. Uh, If you're a follower of Christ, communion is a meaningful moment for you to look at the work of Jesus. So right over there, we have bread and we have a cup, and these items represent the work of Jesus that Jesus' body was broken for you, that Jesus' blood was shed for you, and because of his work, by simply having faith, everything is changed for you.
Your soul is redeemed because of the work of Jesus. So at any point in the next few songs, feel free to take communion. The offering box is also back there. And please let us know if you need prayer for anything. Let's stand. Let's sing these last few songs. Amen.